Greetings, dear listeners uh, and everybody else. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is uh, another exciting, I don't know if it's going to be exciting, but it's another edition of the Remnant Podcast. It, much like the Delta House and Animal House, has a long, actually not even a long, but it has a tradition of existence. And even though I am on vacation here in beautiful Southern California, I decided that I would not sort of lose momentum and do no podcast. What I've been trying to do two a week of late, uh, one a rank punditry podcast, the other one a sort of eggheadery, uh, interesting conversation podcast. And so instead, so we're just going to do this one, and it's going to be sort of a flashback one. We're going back to the old model of podcast potpourri, which means we don't really have a, a script. Well, we never have a script. We don't really have a plan of about where we're going to go. And I've brought in uh, Jack Butler and, and our friend Michael Pratt, who originally helped us get this thing up and running when he was running digital something or other at the American Enterprise Institute, where we normally record. And now... He is, I believe his uh, full title is Media Czar at the American Enterprise Institute. Congrats on the promotion, uh, Thank Michael. you. It's, it's a title worthy of the Obama administration, so thank you for that. Fun historical fact, you know, we, we use this phrase czar for this uh, tendency to appoint someone sort of semi-outside the normal chain of command in, in, in presidential administrations. Someone just sort of, you know, drugs are this, cancers yeah. are that. They're supposed to coordinate between all these different agencies. When I was working on liberal fascism, the the term of art in the early 30s was dictator. Yeah. And, and, it, and it wasn't meant as a sort of pejorative thing because back then dictator didn't quite yet have the negative connotation to it that it does today. It's sort of like social engineer back in the 20s and 30s was not a negative pejorative term. It was like, Engineers were the ultimate and best exemplar of sort of the technological revolution, and they wanted to have social engineers on the social side of stuff as well. And dictator was so. There's like these great headlines in the New York Times from the 30s about you know so and so appointed dictator of infrastructure or whatever. And it's such a weird thing to read in modern times. But again, I digress. Already. So, Already. (laughs) But this is an interesting question. How can you digress if you're not going in any direction at all? It's a good meta point. Oh, so speaking of meta points, my – so, Jack, you're a a grammar fascist, right? Uh, Sure. Why not? Uh, You seem to be when you're dealing with looking at my stuff. Well, it's my job. It's one of them. So I know my daughter is wrong. Uh, because she's young and young people tend to be wrong. But she brought up on this car ride the other day coming up from San Diego to L.A. or to Santa Monica. She said she pointed out this weird glitch in grammar where she said, if if I say, for example, that's all I have in reference to like the money I have. Right. That that is a grammatically correct sentence. But if I say that's all I've, it's not. Mm. Even though it's just the contraction of I have into I've. And we got into this, and it's the same thing with, you know, if someone plaintively cries out, that's all I am, right? It's this dramatic thing. But if you yell, that's all I'm, it's 
really a weird thing to say, and it leaves you hanging for finishing the sentence. And it took me 45 minutes until I finally gave up trying to explain to my daughter that, that there are rules about these things that don't make perfect linear sense. But uh, it was actually a really interesting exercise and in sort of a road trip argument about why she can't do what she really wants to do, even though it makes superficial sense. But can you give me a quick explanation about why I can't say that's all I've, period? Well, I can say that if you were to perhaps transcribe the conversations in, of, of Cockney speakers in England, they might look like that. Because that seems like a, a Cockney way of, of saying those, those things. Like you, I, can hear, I can hear Dick Van Dyke's very authentic uh, Cockney accent in Mary Poppins speaking aloud such formulations. Now, when you were saying very authentic, you were being sarcastic, correct? Yes. Okay, because that actually brings up another digression. My daughter, when she was a little girl, coined the neologism sarcasting, and she always used to say, Daddy, are you sarcasting? Which I actually think is a great, great word. I mean, that's basically what this podcast is. It's a sarcast. It's a separate title for this podcast. (laughs) So... um, so we've been in California, and it's been t- not terrible weather. It's just been chillier than normal, which I kind of like. So like low 70s to high 60s, and, but with the breeze, so it's kind of cool. And it's amazing to walk around here and see some people wearing, like, literally parkas and, um, <laughs> and other people wearing, like, shorts and T-shirts. And it's such a weird climate compared to anybody else, uh, any place else I know in the world. And... One of the things that sort of, I've written about this a bunch, but one of the things that drives me crazy about California is you meet all of these sort of really smug, wealthy Californians who think that they have stumbled upon some great social political model that sort of, you know, California style liberalism is something that could work anywhere. And they never factor in the fact that there are a lot of really, really, really rich people who are willing to pay a premium for 270, 300 days a year of perfect weather and sunshine. And uh, if you had, I always thought that if you had California's social, you know, socioeconomic model in, say, South Dakota, people would be fighting each other with garden rakes for the, the last rutabaga within like you know a couple <laughs> couple weeks um it just wouldn't work i mean it only works here because like in dc what would you if, if someone said we're gonna take we're gonna do withholding from your paycheck what percentage would you accept if you could have sort of 300 days of year of of sunshine and and 70 degree weather and it'd be a lot you know and it's the same thing in 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 california there are lots of people who pay through the nose for the climate, and that's not something Jerry Brown invented, you know? Yeah, but but, it, but as someone who just finished filing his taxes, I'll say the amount that is being withheld from my paycheck right now is pretty bad, even though I'm not getting those 270 days a year of sunshine. So That's true. <laughs> but that's because we're stupid to live in Washington, D.C. Well, that yeah, that's also very fair. So, uh, what else is... So, oh, so you, were you guys in D.C. for the, uh, the march with the kids and the guns and the stuff? I was here, but I was I was at your house because you you made me go to your house. 
Oh, that's right. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. So for listeners who don't know, Jack uh, Butler house sat slash dog sat uh, my, uh, my, my four quadrupeds, two dogs, two cats. How did it go, Jack? I think it went well. I saw your wife's cat on, I think, three occasions, maybe. And it, act- it actually, I was able to pet that cat once. Really? Was, yeah. I was surprised. I think it was at the, 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 the time of day when he wants to, to be let outside. But yes. I still, he did not run away from me when I gingerly put my hands across his back. Did you let, up, did you let Ralph outside? Yes, I did. But the other animals, when they were very well behaved, Pippa is really tennis ball obsessed. I think her brain is just a tennis ball. <laughs> Zoe was a bit calmer than I expected, but I think she was... I have a feeling that she was taking pity on me or something, because it just seemed to me that she was restraining her full animal potential out of mercy or some, some other motive. And... The the good cat Gracie was very good and very cat like, so no complaints really. Yeah, she's aggressively friendly. She uh, isn't that a Stormy old. Daniels title? <laughs> um, uh, Gracie would not do porn in part because she's so Ruben esque. But yet, you know, the dingo for listeners who don't know is whose real name is Zoe has been mellowing a bit of late. You know, she's much more of a homebody. Um, she'll still, you know, chase for 20 minutes anything that decides to run from her that has four legs, but she's a little calmer. We think it's sort of like a prison movie where she is, like, pretending to suck up to the guards and uh, behave, waiting for her moment so she can kill one of the dogs in her neighborhood, but but she's been better. Better check her room underneath, Mike, the, uh, the, underneath the poster. Make sure she doesn't have a tunnel going out the side of the prison. <laughs> um... Uh, Mike, were you in the midst of the the gun stuff? The so stuff? it was very, it was uh, somewhat surreptitious. My my brother and his fiance actually came to visit, and they were like, "It's our first time in DC. Can we go down to the mall this weekend?" And I was like, "Well, you can. It's just you're not gonna have you know the same sort of tranquil view. You're not gonna play frisbee. Yes, exactly." So uh, I I I tried to stay in on on the Virginia side, but I you know. Uh, so I was around. The metro was very crowded. Um, I tried. I tried to avoid the metro even more than I normally tried to avoid it. But there were lots of buses, lots of people in, in all the suburbs. So it, it did seem like a lot of people came down. So it's interesting. I saw this thing, Charlie Cook, uh, British Charlie Cook, uh, British Shaggy. You know, from a National Review, not that Cook Blue Report. Charlie Cook um, was tweeting out these bits from the Washington Post story where they basically did a poll of the marchers, and it's kind of fascinating. It turns out that very few of the marchers were actually interested or said that they were there because of gun control. Right. And, you know, which I find kind of fascinating and completely undermines so much of this, you know, it's a movement, it's a movement whose time has come, this is the voice of a new generation thing, and and this is, I I don't want to rant about it because I've ranted about youth politics a bunch on here before, but, you know, over the weekend, you know, David Hogg did that, what I thought was absolutely odious and basically a blood libel thing where he put a price tag on the podium and went after Marco Rubio about how Marco Rubio sold kids' lives. And, and I tweeted that I thought it was 
you know, the, you know, oh, I guess demagoguery is okay when kids do it. <laughs> and, and my God, the, I mean, it's, it's fascinating the, the rage that disagreeing with these kids or their tactics elicits in some people. And, and one of the most common threads, I mean, Jonathan Alter, all these sort of uh, MSNBC types, all of these Mother Jones types, all these sort of these just progressive types, they constantly return to this claim that anybody who has a problem with the, these sort of bloody shirt politics, calling people you disagreed with, bought and paid for pro-child murderers, that means you're scared about how effective they are. And, you know, it is, and I get this over and over again, you're just scared. You wouldn't be criticizing them, you wouldn't be criticizing this march if you weren't scared about how effective they are and how much of a threat they are to your cherished, you know, gun nuttery and all this kind of stuff. Now, first of all, I'm not a gun nut and um, haven't been, you know, there's nothing in my writing that puts me, you know, remotely close to that. I, I, I defend sort of the Second Amendment rights to the extent that they're sort of misrepresented and all that kind of stuff. And I'm generally pro Second Amendment, but I can't stand the way the NRA operates these days. I think it's grotesque. They're sort of deliberate fomenting of sort of polarization and tribalism and, and, and cultural resentment, I think, is, is fairly disgusting. But on the public policy side, I basically agree with them, you know, get rid of bump stocks or whatever. But on, on the broad parameters, I'm basically an NRA guy. But this idea that I'm terrified of David Hogg and his compelling Jedi mind trick message is such a weird bubble thing to say. I mean, you have to sort of and and I think it's part of this larger piece. Right. So you've got this big sort in our country where you have, you know, this preponderance of of liberals who live in these giant, you know, megapolis big city areas and they don't know people who have guns. They don't understand why people want to have guns. They don't understand gun culture. They don't understand why anybody would want to take their kid, you know, target shooting or hunting or any of that kind of stuff. And so they, and because they don't understand, and this is the point I keep harping on about the NRA, you know, the NRA is not a big donor to campaigns in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it gives money and it's got super PACs and I'm not saying they aren't players, but if you look at the lists from like Open Secrets and all these places about the biggest donors to, pol- to political campaigns, they are sort of second or third tier. What makes the NRA effective is that they are really, really good of messaging and communicating with the some, I don't know, I think it's like 48 million households in this country that have guns and care about gun rights. And so they can tell people who vote on the issue of guns you know, who is pro-gun and who is anti-gun. And it's purely a democratic function. This is supposed to be how, you know, democratic politics works. And so their power isn't that they've bought politicians. The power is, is that they are able to keep politicians accountable to voters. But the sort of blue state coalition that loves these kids cannot or will not see that. And they have to believe that these kids, that they have to believe that anybody who is pro-Second Amendment or who is pro-gun is so solely because they are bought and paid for by some special interest. I mean, it's this weird sort of comic book version of Marxism that says that it's only because people have false consciousness and are, are, um, or are bought and paid for by the industrial ruling classes that they have a, they have a wrong position. 
And the reality is, you know, Marco Rubio isn't bought and paid for. None of these guys are bought and paid for by the NRA. They are, you know, loyal to their voters who are disproportionately pro-Second Amendment. But in so, in, so in, it's sort of the same argument, which says that there is no sincere or legitimate way you can be pro-Second Amendment. You must be bought and paid for by somebody. The same thing is you can, there is no sincere objection to these kids because their moral authority is absolute. So it must be that you're either scared of the effectiveness of their message or that you are being paid to do this. And it's just so – it's so weird and creepy and childish. It's, it's, it's a lot like the, the stuff about the Koch brothers only being motivated by the profit motive. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's nuts. So as a media czar, I just remember a couple of years ago when the high school students were walking out for that protest against a- something about the AP history test. I, I forget exactly what it was, but some of my friends were sharing on Facebook, this is amazing. Look at, you know, look at the students standing up for themselves and look, some of the students probably genuinely are passionate about this, but I know how hard it is to get media coverage for anything and how much orchestration goes into those types of things. And, uh, you know, same thing here. I'm sure that the students are genuinely interested in making a difference after what they went through. But let's not for a second pretend that they're the only actors <laughs> in this. They're being used by people who are good at PR in, you know, promoting the message that they're, that they're hoping to get more people supporting. Yeah, and uh, that, to me, that's okay. I just, it doesn't bother me, though I guarantee you, Michael, that if you tweeted that, yeah, well, exactly. um, right. you know, they would they would cover you in pig's blood like you were Carrie at the prom. And but I have no problem with that. And also, I, you know, I, I, pers- I particularly don't care about the fact that, you know, it, it, that they're pro gun control or any of this kind of stuff. Yes. I'm perfectly willing to engage the arguments. The only re- the only thing I'm critical about the role of these kids in this is that I think they're being exploited. And I think it's kind of gross. Yeah. And I mean, I think I talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know. I spent 25 years now in and out of green rooms in Washington, and I've seen what being in demand by the media does to some people. And it does it to adults. I mean, uh, you get these people who are, for whatever reason, they have this moment of popularity, this moment of relevance, and they internalize all of the compliments and flattery that they get from the people who are using them for ratings. And, you know, they think it's normal to get phone calls from. You know, and it happened to me a bit when I was involved in all that Lewinsky stuff. And I, the thing is, I grew up inside of media stuff, and I understood that this was fleeting, and that's not why I got into it. And so, but, you know, it could still go to my head. When you get, you know, a 17-year-old kid who is told that they are the voice of their generation, they are basically of messianic importance, that their moral authority is absolute, um, and that they can, and that anybody who criticizes them is but is is de facto immoral. Telling that to a friggin' 17-year-old is child abuse. And yet, basically, MSNBC is using these kids as free commercials for MSNBC. I mean, they're literally making commercials with these kids. And if you say anything about how, oh, you know, maybe kids who just survived a mass shooting and were shoved in front of cameras and told that they were the most important things in the universe that maybe, you know, six months from now, there'll be a downside to that. You're all of a sudden told you're just scared of these kids because they're so important and so great. 
And I, I, it is one of these things. It's, it's like, it's like all of the sort of reappraisals that came with the Me Too movement. I am utterly confident that in a year or two years from now, I will be able to say I told you so about at least one of these kids who kind of just went off the rails, you know, went full Cindy Sheehan, doesn't go to college or drops out of college or whatever and becomes a full-time woke activist because they just get addicted to the attention. And what won't happen to all of them. I'm sure it won't happen to all of them. Some of them probably have responsible parents that are going to say, okay, that's enough. Let's deal with your real life now. But for some of them, you know, I just, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. It's going to be a mess. And, and I just think this idea that raising that concern is somehow beyond the pale is itself kind of beyond the pale. It's weird. So before we go on to something else, Jonah, I want to ask you the New York Times op-ed by retired Justice Stevens about, you know, it's time to repeal the Second Amendment. I've often wondered when we were going to have that sort of honest conversation from that side. What, what did you think about that? Yeah, Careful what I mean, you like, say, I, the Twitter I, police are, are outside of your hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I will get to that in a second, but I have a fantastic story that is a first for me. So I'm staying, I'll just be straight with reader, listeners, because by the time you hear this, I'll be gone. Uh, I'm staying at the Fairmont Hotel in Santa Monica. It's pricey, but uh, my daughter loves this place since she was a little girl. I basically taught her how to swim in the pool here more, well... Taught her how to swim in the pool here and also on National Review Cruises. And um, <laughs> and uh, we still call it the Turtle Hotel in my family, even though they got rid of the turtles from the koi pond, for which I am still furious. None of that is relevant right now. I, my, I've promised my daughter for years they have one of these New York City uh, – one of these New York trapeze school things at the Santa Monica Pier. And – promised her for years that she could do it and she finally caught me early enough that i couldn't say no and so i tried to sign her up yesterday and i couldn't get the website to work and i couldn't get them on the phone so i went to the concierge here to ask if they could sign up my daughter while we went out to breakfast or whatever and so i go to the concierge really nice guy and uh, I'm like, you know, my daughter wants to do the trapeze school. They say they have a slot left open at 4.30. Do you think you could do it? Blah, blah, blah. And he says, oh, I haven't talked to them in a long time, but I'll, I, I can do it. Hey, you're, you're Jonah Goldberg from The Remnant, right? And yes. like, I've, gotten your, I've gotten your Jonah Goldberg from, you know, Fox News or from, you know, Larry King or from whatever before. I've even gotten Jonah, your Jonah Goldberg from the L.A. Times once in L.A., but I've never, you know, but to get recognized as a dude from this weird podcast was really bizarre. And he's like, yeah, I'm a big fan. And um, I was, so anyway, I want to say props to Ryan. He will go down in history as the first person who said they recognize me from a podcast, which is odd because, like, my face isn't on the podcast. But uh, and my wife thought I was, like, lying for the first telling her about this but it's true so anyway so you have so there's that uh yeah all, was, all the media attention going going to the head clearly <laughs> clearly i mean um oh yes yeah, so um anyway my daughter you can see the video of her on my twitter account jack will link to it in the show notes uh but she did great on the trapeze thing which is both good news and bad news on the gun control on the uh, the stevens thing look i i think it's entirely intellectually honest and legitimate position to say 
we should just get rid of the Second Amendment. Um, I much prefer that approach, not just on the gun control question, but um, on the constitutional question. You know, I, this is one of these bugaboos that just drives me crazy, where people who say, you know, if we didn't have a living, breathing constitution that changes with the times, uh, women would never have the right to vote and we would still have slavery. And I was like, no, you, you, that gets it completely wrong. The living constitution is when you breathe new meaning into the existing text. The actual constitution says that if you want to change what the constitution says, you change the constitution. And so slavery was ended in this country because we amended the constitution, the 13th and 14th amendments. Uh, same thing with uh, women's suffrage. We amended the constitution. If you don't like guns in this country and you don't think it should be a constitutional right, saying get rid of the Second Amendment, repeal the Second Amendment, is an utterly intellectually honest way of going about it. What is not intellectually honest is reading into the text something that is not there. Now, there is an interesting question, which I think will split many people sort of on the eggheady right and a few on the eggheady left to the extent that they believe in constitutional literalism and all this stuff, about whether or not you still have a right to uh, a weapon even if they get rid of the Second Amendment. Because the whole point of natural rights is that you have them whether or not the government says you have them, right? The founding documents of this country, you know, the Declaration of Independence says we are all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. That means the government can't take them away from you because they are innate in every human being. And I get into this quite a bit in the book I got coming out, but it's an interesting question. As a legal matter, I think if you get rid of the Second Amendment, there are all sorts of things the government has, according to its own rules, a, a legitimate right to regulate in ways that it can't with the existence of the Second Amendment. But do you lose your right to self-defense um, because the government says you no longer have it? Uh, I don't know that that's true. You know, uh, yeah. I don't think that you lose your right to worship if they get rid of the First Amendment. And I will be, I will very much look forward to a Richard, maybe we'll get Richard Epstein or one of those guys on to hash this out. I think it's an interesting philosophical sort of legal first principle question. But as a political matter, it's a much more honest approach to say, get rid of the Second Amendment. Um, the problem with it is that you're never going to be able to get rid of the Second Amendment. And if the Democrats <laughs> did it seriously, they would lose 10 or 15 more Senate seats because the, the states that... They would never win, uh, you know, almost any red state again if the Democrats took seriously the idea of getting rid of the Second Amendment. I mean, the way to think about it is imagine if the Democrats said we're, we're in favor of getting rid of Roe v. Wade and the right to an abortion. And then imagine running as a Democrat in a blue in you know, in California or in New York. Right. Or imagine or if the Republicans were serious about truly serious about getting rid of Roe v. Wade in a way that could be put up for uh, electoral test. It's one of the main reasons why they don't win in deep blue states. And so uh, the reason why a lot of liberals don't want Stevens to say it is that even though they believe in getting rid of guns, getting rid of gun rights, they can't say so politically. And it's always funny when like every now and then the mask slips and Barack Obama says, well, you know, the Australian model is really interesting, but we're not for getting rid of your guns. Well, that's what the Australian model was. So anyway, all right, so hey, Jack. We're, yes. This is supposed to be this is supposed to be podcast potpourri. Um, did any potpourri come in over the transom? A little bit, not as much as I was hoping. 
Do you want me to read some of the questions? Sure. Uh, let's see. Here's a good one. Uh, is fantasy literature inherently liberal or conservative? What about sci-fi? Interesting. I would argue that... Actually, I should say I have argued. It depends on the fantasy, right? If you're going to fantasize... You can make a case that Star Trek is pretty liberal because it, it imagines a world where people sort of really overcome human nature and get rid of things like money and all that kind of stuff. But that's a, that's a discussion for another day. I think the best sci-fi, one of the reasons why it works as sci-fi, is precisely because it is conservative. I don't mean ideologically conservative in the sense of you know lining up with National Review editorials. I mean small-c conservative in the sense that what makes sci-fi and fantasy compelling is that the one constant, you can have lasers, you can have spaceships, you can have faster-than-light travel, you can do all of these things. The one thing that holds constant is human nature. And the idea that uh, human nature is not malleable, and, and, and it, that's why, forget sci-fi fantasy, that's why literature works, is that regardless of how different the universe that you're being introduced to, what makes it accessible is... Um, that you recognize yourself or you recognize the human condition to some extent in the characters. And if you start, I mean, I, I suppose there's good science fiction where the characters are not uh, relatable as human beings. But I, I think that when that happens, it's more interesting because the only reason why it would be interesting is it's sort of a litmus test that it reminds you of what it means to be human. But if you read things like Dune, you know, I just finished watching that, that series Expanse. If you look at you know movies like Alien, the you know the original Alien, not the the garbage fires that came after Aliens Two, what makes all those sorts of things sort of fascinating and compelling is that uh, you know it it sets it it puts you in a world where you're still where human human wants and desires are still the same, and that insight that human nature has no history, that human nature does not change is really the bedrock of vast swaths of conservatism. What, that, anything else? Uh, best and worst Avenger. Uh, well, since, since uh, Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye, uh, responded to Shannon Bream that he was ready to go visit some dying kid who wanted to meet an Avenger before he died, right now I'm very pro-Hawkeye. And he, I've always, he really deserves his own movie. Yeah, and I, and I gotta say, I've all, I, I, I'm not just making this up. I always thought a Hawkeye was underrated in the comic books. And in part because I just think bows and arrows are cool. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about movie Avengers, uh, gosh. I guess right now you have to say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm really going to get tired of Iron Man because he just has way too many Iron Man suits. And with AI, he doesn't even need to be in them anymore. And, you know, I just. That, that stuff really kind of annoys me. So I guess I'm guessing Thor right now, even though I'm, I'm mad at Thor because there's almost no relationship to Norse mythology, which I loved as a kid. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, I, maybe it is Hawkeye and Black Widow because Black Widow is easy on the eyes. So let me assert something here, and you can respond. Uh, related to the questions that I've just asked, I finally saw Black Panther last week, uh -huh. and I realized, or at least I think... The basic plot shares a lot with the basic plot of Dune, if you think about it. And not just in a, in a cliched monomyth sense, but 
even in, down more to specifics, such as the uh, analog of vibranium and the spice melange, mm-hmm, uh, the mm-hmm. fact that the the hero is presumed dead, and his his mother and his sister uh, have to be the ones who help save him. That there's a climactic battle with the usurper to the throne. There are other there are other things that I thought of, but it was just a random. You know, thought. That's- that's that's that's, that's I, I I very rarely compliment you publicly, but that's very good. Um, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I hadn't thought about that because I mean, to me, the similarities are so obvious with Wonder Woman, right? The yeah the the royal princeling of a secret, essentially island kingdom goes out into the real world and uh, you know is better than everybody else, is more human than all the humans, uh, very numinous. But you're right in terms of plot. There's a lot of lot of Dune there. The difference is in the value adds because the value add of Dune is this weird sort of almost hippie esque emphasis on the environment, and right? Because and the value add of Black Panther is the like really almost eggheady foreign policy debate that forms the backbone of the movie. Uh, and neither neither property shares that with the other. But in terms of basic plot. Uh, and the like, weirdly specific things like a highly gifted younger sister and and mother, and even the fact that they both go into a drug induced coma just before they come back for their final battle. That's not bad. Yeah, because the flowers that the vibranium flower things were actually a lot like Melange, right? They give you special yeah. powers. Yeah, um, that's interesting. One last point about about Black Panther. My understanding is that a bunch of people wanted to say that Killmonger, the guy who said, you know, we have to go kill, we have to go conquer these other countries and we'll, we'll colonize them rather than them colonize us. Because in a, in, a, in a sort of realist fashion, it's a state of, you know, it's sort of a, the international realm is a state of nature and either you're conquered or a conqueror. Um, I know some of our friends at some other niche podcasts are very much in favor of Killmonger's foreign policy. To me, it is perfectly not perfectly but it is analogous to a large extent with the position taken by michael anton formerly known as decius whatever at the claremont review books and 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 the uh the old national greatness blog where i was arguing with him about um identity politics and and i think it was andrew sullivan quoted him or was talking with him about uh sort of demagogues and and despotism and Anton's position uh, was basically the fight for classical liberalism, the flight, the fight for universal norms and rules is over. Therefore, the only question is, do we want to be ruled by our kind of despot or their kind of despot? Do we want to have our kind of identity politics or their kind of identity politics? And I think that the people who sort of lionize other than a sort of fun, provocative sort of arguments add Sonny Buncham way – um, uh, in favor of Killmonger's position, are basically saying that that we, that sort of liberal democracy has kind of run its course, and and I understand there's a difference between domestic policy and foreign policy, but it, I, I think it was very interesting, sort of the die marker that the argument about Killmonger versus um, Black Panther opened up. And anyway, we can talk about. Well, we probably shouldn't talk about that more. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I it think did that's occur- probably enough. It, it did occur to me though when we were talking about the Avengers and who were the best Avengers that you know, you know, so Black Panther is going to be 
uh, I assume an Avenger in the coming so you know uh, Civil War stuff or whatever it's called Infinity Infinity War, War. Infinity War and and the Avengers are probably going to have to do more recruiting to you know to be able to take on is it Dark Seed that they're fighting I can't remember that's a DC one uh, it's Thanos wait wait wait, wait. are you wow that was wow. a serious yeah. question. No, I mean, hey, you know, look, that, that would it, that it, would truly be the most uh, aggressive crossover event in the history of the world. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, hey, but you know, all I was trying to point out is that when you're in an apocalyptic struggle and you're trying to recruit heroes to your side, um, you have to throw a wide net. And something very similar goes on when you're looking to to hire somebody in today's marketplace. And that's why <laughs> ZipRecruiter is such a great uh, uh, resource for people looking to hire. Um, and if you're looking to hire, you know, posting your position on, to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it can be a real drag. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a, qual- get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. And Mike, I know you're going to be hiring, so you know, maybe you want to look into ZipRecruiter. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. How'd you like that? that? All I was trying to do was get to my segue, guys. That was, that was really <laughs> good. And look, I'd say I, we are, I am hiring for two positions. I'm going to have to check this out. Maybe also you can throw like the Mediazar title and see what, you know, see what else is out there. <laughs> so uh so i'm trying to remember well you, you got into a little bit of a twitter battle uh, recently if i if i remember correctly yeah something bad happened on twitter i'm shocked <laughs> uh, i'm trying to remember which one. Oh, oh, do you mean the one with the uh the with with uh, with dr gorka yes that is, um, I, yeah so uh you know, I'm not sure how much I want to sort of drag this outside and all, and all over the place, but people keep asking me what's going on with that. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I've met I've met Seb Gorka a bunch of times in the green room at Fox. Seems like a nice guy. He's a real glad hander. I just think that what he's doing is is shtick. It's pure shtick entertainment stuff. You know. I will make this as an. I will just. I will make one quick observation. If you watch the Fox News channel, people outside of Fox News, and particularly sort of in the liberal media, are very eager to blur the distinction between Fox News and Fox Opinion. Right? Fox and Friends is not a product of Fox News. Sean Hannity, not a product of Fox News. Uh, the opinion shows um, do things differently than the Fox News shows. I, I think I'm not spilling dirty laundry anywhere when I say that as a Fox News contributor, I have my differences with the way things are going in the Fox opinion world. 
you know, it's it's not like I haven't already lost any opportunity to ever appear on Sean Hannity's show again, which is fine with both of us. But I'll just make this observation. You do not see Seb Gorka on any Fox News shows, as far as I'm aware. He is purely a creature of the Fox opinion side, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so funny that his Twitter handle says that he's a Fox News foreign policy strategist, um, which I don't think is a title that actually exists. I don't know. Maybe that was in his contract. I find that very strange. Um, It seems to me that he is sort of a, he's a Sean Hannity show appendage. And, and so anyway, we got into this really stupid argument on Twitter because he had retweeted some high school kids thing about how Democrats who supported Harvey Weinstein and Bill Clinton were hypocrites for criticizing Donald Trump for uh, betting a porn star. And, and Gorka tweets, boom, like, you know, this was like this devastating thing. And I responded to it, fizzle, because I thought it was really dumb. And, and then he comes after me and says, I guess your hypocrisy meter is broken, Jonah. And I kind of, I guess I lost my uh, cool a little bit with him. And we went round and round and round. And it was amazing. He could never, he, he, not once did he answer a question directly or engage on facts. And he just simply bebobbed and scatted for his MAGA hat wearing followers. And he tried to make it sound like I was, you know, you know, he was like, you know, my followers only care about facts and reason and logic and, and made it try to make it sound like I was some sort of entertainer, which I literally think it's sort of sad because I think Gorka has important insights and is a smart guy or at least once did. But he is now purely a MAGA entertainer, as far as I can tell. And at, and so anyway, we went back and forth, and he kept changing the subject and never answering any questions and never dealing with any arguments, never you know, dealing with the fact that the same – if you're a conservative who's pointing out liberal hypocrisy over the, the, the Stormy Daniels thing without condemning the Stormy Daniels thing, uh, then you're a hypocrite too, right? I mean right. this hypocrisy thing, it gets so tedious because people always want to point out the hypocrisy of the other tribe for changing its position – while not noting that they've changed theirs. Like, I condemn all presidents of either party cheating on their, you know, uh, their wives. I condemn people for, you know, uh, you know, banging interns, whether Republicans or Democrats. I don't think there's one set of rules for Republicans and one set of rules for Democrats. Um, and there's not a sliding morality sta- scale, depending upon which letter you have after your name. And that's essentially what Gorka's position is. And he, he sort of beclowned himself a bunch of times. You know, one time he was like, you know, you mean Stormy Daniels, who was denied in an affidavit that she ever did anything? You know, show me one time where Juanita Broderick or whoever is, has signed an affidavit saying that she didn't do anything. And I was like, okay, and sent her the, the, PDA, the, the link to the, uh, the affidavit that she signed um, during the Clinton scandals. And he just ignored it and moved on. And he's like, MAGA, 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 and, you know, threw his bloody tunic to his crowd. And so at the end of it, because he kept questioning sort of my honor and, and all this kind of stuff and questioning my intellectual honesty, which I think I paid a pretty steep price defending and all of this stuff. I just asked him, can you name three times where you have criticized Donald Trump's policies or his character? Just three times. And instead, it's more bebopping and scatting and preening for his audience. And 
refuses to answer it. And, you know, and I said, you know, look, when you don't answer this question, it looks cowardly. And then he, of course, wants to go to his dueling pistol stance and says that I'm the coward for saying he looks cowardly, yada, yada, yada. And I kept asking him, just, you know, just answer the question. And he can't answer the question because um, his job is to go out and be a cheerleader for the administration, which is one of the reasons why I think you never see him on the news side of things. And it was interesting where, you know, at one point I pointed out that he was fired from the, the Trump administration, which he was, which some outlets reported incorrectly at the time that he wasn't fired, that he resigned. And he was, and a bunch of people say in the responses to me, he, you know, it wasn't that he was fired. It was that they thought he would be more useful defending the administration on TV than he was working within the administration. And to me, that's like, okay, exactly. He is a de facto spinner for the Trump administration. His first priority is to behave like he works for the RNC, only more extreme, and say the things that Sean Hannity wants him to say. And there's a role for that. The world is, you know, there's always going to be a market for flax and hacks and people who do cheerleading. But then don't pretend that you're doing something else. And... Uh, that's sort of what got under my skin and why I got, you know, sort of my dudgeon up about all of it. He's capable of doing something else. He just chooses not to because I think he got swept up in this movement and he likes the author- he likes the attention. And and he sort of skulked away without ever once, you know, presumably if you could provi- provide some evidence that you have criticized this administration, you would have provided it just to p- maintain the you know, the fiction of your intellectual honesty and independence, but he refused to do that. Instead, you know, one of his things was, Jonah, you know, Twitter is not a debate society, as if this was somehow a legitimate or plausible reason to dodge, you know, engaging in an argument where he claims to be an intellectual. So anyway, I kind of feel like I'm Omar on the wire calling out Marlo uh, <laughs> by doing all of this. But uh, I just, you know, I just, this idea, you know, this insinuation that he has that somehow, like, he's the serious person and and I'm not, and that I don't do, that I do fan service and he doesn't, I just find you know really insulting and kind of pathetic. And um, if he wants to sort of, you know, I know he carries around his you know his his man go bag thing, and he fancies himself uh, very thick and rich in testosterone. Have you if seen his license plate? Oh, what is his license plate again? Art of War. Yeah, um, it it you know it sounds like he's overcompensating a lot, um, you know. And you know, remember this is the guy who said that what uh, that the texts between Strzok and Page um, were proof that what was going on at the FBI was ten thousand times worse than the offenses the British leveled against America um, to justify revolution. You know, there's a kind of, you know, hyperbole to this guy that is, I just find clownish and comical. And I have, a, you know, it's sort of like, like, if you, if you ever see um, a toddler, you know, who dresses, you know, like a little boy who dresses up like a Viking and never breaks character about how he's going to, like, pillage your village and, you know, crush all of you and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of adorable. <laughs> um, but... Uh, it's adorable in little kids. It's kind of sad in people who are, you know, my own age. So anyway, I, I think I've made my point. I didn't plan on going as long about all that, but you know, there you have it. Um, all right. So next, do we have any uh, any other pressing items that we need to address? 
Uh, do you want to talk about uh, Kevin Williamson's jump into the breach? I'll get to that in just a second, but first I need to thank our other sponsor for this week, and that is Donors Trust. And as a lot of you know, you've heard me do this shtick before, um, Donors Trust is this incredibly important and, and useful and sort of multiplier institution um, on the right for libertarians, for conservatives, people interested in, in, in supporting civil society, supporting institutions that protect and expand freedom. And it's for people who want to give money to charity, who um, want to make sure that their money gets the most value out of it, that they get the most tax benefits from it, and that they, uh, and they, and their money isn't sort of run away with and goes to some sort of basketball stadium or to some liberal cause or progressive cause that may be fine and perfectly legitimate in its own right, but it is not what people wanted to give their money for. And Donors Trust is sort of like a, a, a watchdog for this. And, and it's, again, for people who are interested in giving money, who are, who are charitably minded, uh, it's particularly important around tax time right now because the rules have changed and there may be new benefits and new advantages to doing this now um, that haven't been around before, and you can talk to Donors Trust to get to get the best advice on all of this. I'm trying to do this off the top of my head rather than read from the copy because I think people tend to tune out the copy if they hear the same thing every week after week. But I do think I should, you know, read this part, which says that all donor advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. You can go to donorstrust.org/dingo to access your free six reasons to use a donor's advised guide um, to see for yourself why experts are recommending the fast-growing tool for charitable givers. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional e-books to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. So go to donorstrust.org slash dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donors advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. Yeah, I got to say, you know, again, because I've been on vacation and I've been kind of tuned out for some of this stuff. I, I've seen more of the stuff responding to the left than I've read of the actual left because I find the what I what I've seen of the left's outrage so pathetic and sad. You know, do I agree with everything Kevin Williamson has written? No, but I think Kevin Williamson is arguably you know probably the best writer of his generation these days, and has been firing on all cylinders for the last you know. Uh, 18 months in ways that I that, that around idly envy in me, and um, uh, and it seemed like an obviously smart call for Jeff Goldberg, no relation, to pick up Kevin, and it kind of broke my heart for NR that Kevin was leaving, but I was very happy for Kevin, and I, I think it's Ben Dominic who made the point that this has less to do with any of Kevin's actual positions. And has more to do with this idea of power, right? There is this uh, tendency I've written a lot about, where the the you know the the essence of progressivism over the last hundred years is you know advancing progressive power and 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 so whenever 
trend lines go against progressives, even even at the margins. They see it as like this screeching, grinding monkey wrench in the wheel of history, and it freaks them out. You know, look, I mean, if I were Jeffrey Goldberg, I would be kind of bummed out that so many left-wingers think that they have this kind of ownership stake in the Atlantic. And if I were one of the Atlantic's in-house conservatives, I'd be kind of bummed out that they all think that I'm so conventional that, you know, I'm fine, but, you know, Kevin Williamson isn't. You know, Kevin, Kevin is, one, is one of the most knowledgeable, interesting, smartest people I've ever net, met. He's a, I, I am the first to concede he's an odd duck, as he is too, I would assume. But that's what makes him sort of such a fascinating writer, and he has such a fascinating diversity of interests. And, you know, if, if I don't, I, I think on Twitter he could be a troll deliberately. I mean, a troll is the wrong word. He could be needlessly provocative on Twitter because he would get fed up with the stupidity of people. But in his writing, you know, whether you agree with him or not, he is sort of in the classic tradition of Albert J. Nock, of one of these guys who thinks that good, important writing is better than uh, sort of sort of ideological connect the dots or, uh, or checklist writing. I mean, he comes to things the way he wants to come at them in a smart and intelligent way. And if that freaks people out, uh, you know, shame on them. And so I, I just, it just, it seems to me it's one of the, it's, it's, I haven't seen a good argument and obviously I'm biased because Kevin's a friend of mine and I admire him. I haven't seen a good argument anywhere for why the Atlantic is, is wrong to hire the guy. I, I can see an argument down the road why maybe the Atlantic shouldn't have run this piece or that piece by Kevin. Um, because whenever you bring in somebody who's, you know, uh, that good and that um, idiosyncratic, they're going to write something that some editor is going to say, you know, this isn't for us. And that's perfectly fine for an editor to do. But this sort of uh, heckler's veto mob boycott nonsense, I just think is kind of pathetic. And it's particularly pathetic coming from places like the New Republic, which used to be precisely the kind of magazine that Jeffrey Goldberg is 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 trying to revive and keep alive, which is this, you know, obviously the Atlantic is more liberal than it is conservative, but it sees itself as sort of engaging in the public square and engaging in ideas and engaging in argument. And the old New Republic used to do that. I don't mean the New Republic when it was a communist rag. I mean the New Republic of sort of the the 80s and, and, and mid-90s, where it invited different people with different views to have arguments, which is what democracy is supposed to be about. And it's sort of shameful that the New Republic has sort of become this sort of, you know, utterly predictable, woke thing when it comes to these kinds of issues. And it reflects worse on the New Republic than hiring Kevin does to the Atlantic. So anyway, with that off my chest, we should wrap up, but I want to say thanks to Michael and to Jack, who had to fall off at, towards the end here. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys for being on. Mike, congrats again on your uh, new gig. And more thank importantly, you. if people could give more reviews at iTunes, please subscribe to this where you can. Uh, next week, we got a full schedule. We're going to do uh, more Eggheady podcasts with, I believe, we got Ross Douthat nailed down from when we lost him because of the snow that, didn't, that kind of fizzled. And we are going to try to get uh, this obscure uh, senator that some of you have heard of, uh, Ben Sass, back on the show. 
And there are going to be other surprises um, in the stores. So thanks again to everybody, and I'll speak at you next week.